dun, dun, dun. I just thought, as you wish, seemed a very dramatic place to end the last episode. I will admit, I do like, as you wish, of him rolling down the hill in the film better than just the, like, Ugh. <sighs> as you wish, as Leslie's, like, dying at the bottom of this hundred-foot ravine. Dawn in the Mountains. Buttercup turned back to the source of the sound and stared down as, in first light, the man in black struggled to remove his mask. "'Oh, my sweet Leslie,' Buttercup said, "'what have I done to you now?' From the bottom of the ravine there came only silence. Buttercup hesitated not a moment. Down she went after him, keeping her feet as best she could, and as she began— she thought she heard him crying out to her over and over, but she could not make sense of his words, because inside her now there was the thunder of walls crumbling, and that was the noise enough, and that was noise enough. Besides, her balance quickly was gone, and the ravine had her. She fell fast and she fell hard, but what did that but what did that matter, since she would have gladly dropped a thousand feet onto a bed of nails if Wesley had been waiting at the bottom? The melodrama! Like, to hell with in sickness or in health. That's, that's what your wedding vows need to be, for better or for worse. But you'd be like, hey, would you gladly drop a thousand feet onto a bed of nails if I was waiting at the bottom, hmm? How much do you love me? Do you love me that much? Down, down. Tossed and spinning, crashing, torn, and all out of control, she rolled and twisted and plunged, cartwheeling towards what was left of her beloved. From his position at the point of the armada, Prince Humperdinck stared up at the cliffs of insanity. This was just like any other hunt. He made himself sink away the quarry. It did not matter if you were after an antelope or bride-to-be. The, the procedures held. You gathered evidence. Then you acted. You studied. Then you performed. If you studied too little, the chances were strong that your actions would also be too late. You had to take time. And so, frozen in thought, he continued to stare up the sheer face of the cliffs. I feel it is important to mention that cliffs is capitalized. At the end of that sentence, just, just so you know we're being serious here, as if the name The Cliffs of Insanity didn't already get that point across. <clears throat> Obviously, someone had recently climbed them. There were foot scratchings all the way up a straight line, which meant, most certainly, a rope, an arm of an arm climb, up a thousand-foot rope with occasional kicks for balance. To make such a climb required both strength and planning, so the prince made those marks in his brain. My enemy's strong. My enemy is not impulsive. Now, whoops, sorry, moved my phone, and that was not a good place for it. It was dying, and, okay, um, to do, to do, to do, 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 do,
My enemy is strong. My enemy is not impulsive. Now his eyes reached a point perhaps 300 feet from the top. Here it began to get interesting. Now the foot scratchings were deeper, more frequent, and they followed no direct ascending line. Either someone left the rope 300 feet from the top intentionally, which made no sense, or the rope was cut while that someone was still 300 feet from safety. For clearly this last part of the climb was made up the rock face itself. But who had such talent? And why had he been called to exercise it at such a deadly time, 700 feet above disaster? I must examine the tops of the cliffs of insanity, the prince said, without bothering to turn. From behind him, Count Rugen only said, Done, and awaited further instructions. Send half the armada south along the coastline, the other north. They should meet by twilight near the fire swamp. Our ships will sail at the first land Our ships will sail to the first landing possibility, and you will follow me with your soldiers. Ready the whites. Count Rugen signaled the cannoneer 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 C A N N O N E E R Cannoneer Cannoneer I'm going with Cannoneer and the prince's instructions boomed along the cliffs. Within minutes, the armada had begun to split, and only the prince's giant ship sailing alone closest to the coastline, looking for a landing possibility. There, the prince ordered, some time later, and his ship began maneuvering into the cove for a safe place to anchor. That took time, but not much, because the captain was skilled and more than that, the prince was quick to lose patience, and no one dared risk that. Humperdinck jumped from ship to shore, a plank was lowered, and the whites were led to ground. Of all his accomplishments, none pleased the prince, as did these horses. Some day he would have an army of them, but getting the bloodlines perfect was a slow business. He now had four whites, and they were identical. Snowy, tireless giants, twenty hands high. On flat land, nothing could catch them, and even on hills and rocky terrain, there was nothing short of... Uh, Arby? A-R-E-B-Y? Arby? I'm going with Arby. Close to their equal. The prince, when rushed rode all four bareback and only way he ever rode the only way he ever rode riding okay starting the sentence over because we switched pages and then the whole sentence went awry the prince when rushed rode all four bareback the only way he ever rode riding one leading three chasing beasts in mid-stride so that no sing changing. Good lord, this sentence. There's so many commas. Okay, we're going to finish the end of the sentence and then start from the beginning again. Chasing, changing. 
changing beasts in mid-stride so that no single animal had to bear his bulk to the tiring point. There's so many commas, and I understand the sentence, but reading it aloud is... The prince, comma, when rushed, comma, rode all four, comma, bareback, comma, the only way he ever rode, comma, riding one, comma, leading three, comma, changing beasts in mid-stroke, comma, so that no single animal had to bear his bulk to the tiring point. Okay, last try, here we go. The prince, when rushed, rode all four, bareback. The only way he ever rode, riding one, leading three, changing beasts in mid-stroke so that no single animal had to bear his bulk to the tiring point. Now he mounted and was gone. It took him considerably less than an hour to reach the edge of the cliffs of insanity. So what is considerably less than an hour? Like... That's, it's such a weird, like, is it under half an hour? What is considerable? 15 minutes? But then why not just say it took him a quarter of an hour? So is it between 15 and 30? I would consider that to be considerably less than an hour, but I would also consider like five, 10 minutes to be considerably less than an hour. Like, half doesn't seem right to be considerable. Fifteen seems like, well, why wouldn't you just say quarter of an hour? So my brain goes, anything under fifteen minutes would be considerably less than an hour. But that's just so, how, mm, and I understand that the horses are supposed to be fast, but what is considerably less than an hour? Moving on. It took him considerably less than an hour to reach the edge of the cliffs of insanity. He dismounted, went to his knees, commenced study of the terrain. There had been a rope tied around a giant oak. The bark at the base was broken and scraped, so po probably whoever first reached to the top untied the rope, and whoever was on the rope at the moment was 300 feet from the peak somehow, and 300 we <laughs> whoever first reached the top untied the rope and whoever was on the rope at that moment was 300 feet from the peak and somehow survived the climb a great jumble of footprints caused him trouble it was hard to ascertain what had gone on perhaps a conference because two sets of footprints seemed to lead off while one remained pacing the cliff edge. Then there were two on the cliff edge. Humperdinck examined the prince until he was certain of two things. One, a fencing match had taken place. Two, the combatants were both masters. The stride length, the quickness of the foot feints, all clearly revealed to his unfailing eye made him reassess his second conclusion. They were at least masters, probably better. Then he closed his eyes and concentrated on smelling out the blood. Surely, in a match of such ferocity, blood must have been spilled. 
Now it was a matter of giving his entire body over to his sense of smell. The prince had worked at this for many years, ever since a wounded tigress had surprised him from the tree limb while he was tracking her. He had let his eyes follow the blood hunt then, and it is he had let his eyes follow the blood hunt then, and it had almost killed him. Now he trusted only his olifactories. If there was blood within a hundred yards, he would find it. He opened his eyes, moved without hesitation towards a group of large boulders until he found the blood drops. There were few of them, and they were dry, but less than three hours old. Humperdinck smiled. When you had the whites under you, three hours was a finger snap. He, he retraced the duel then, for it confused him. It seemed to range from cliff edge and back, then return to the cliff edge. And sometimes the left foot seemed to be leading, sometimes the right, which made no logical sense at all. Clearly swordsmen were changing hands, but why would a master do that unless his good arm was wounded to the point of uselessness? And that clearly had not happened, because a wound of that depth would have left blood spots, and there was simply not enough blood in the area to indicate that. Strange, strange... Humperdinck continued his wanderings. Stranger still, the battle could not have ended in death. He knelt by the outline of a body. Clearly a man had laid unconscious here, but again, no blood. There was a mighty duel, Prince Humperdinck said, directing his comments toward Count Rugen, who had finally caught up together with a contingent of a hundred mounted men-at-arms. My guess would be... And for a moment, the prince paused, following footsteps. Would be that whoever fell here ran off there, and he pointed one way. And whoever was the victor ran off along the path in almost precisely the opposite direction. It is also my opinion that the victor was following the path taken by the princess. Shall we follow them both? the count asked. I think not, Prince Humperdinck replied. Whoever is gone is of minimal importance, since whoever has the princess is whoever we're after. And because we don't know the nature of the trap we might be being led into, we need all the arms we have in one band. Clearly this has been planned by countrymen of Gilder, and nothing must ever be put past them. You think this is a trap, then? the Count asked. I always think everything a tra I always think everything is a trap until proven otherwise, the prince answered, which is why I'm still alive. And with that, he was back abroad aboard. Reading is not my area of expertise today, apparently. And with that he was back aboard a white and galloping. When he reached the mountain path where the hand where the hand fight happened, the prince did not even bother dismounting. Everything that could be seen was quite visible from horseback. Someone has beaten a giant, he said, when the count was close enough. The giant has run away, do you see? The count, of course, saw nothing but rock and mountain path. I would not think to doubt you. 
and look there cried the prince because now he saw for the first time in the rubble of the mountain path the footsteps of a woman the princess is alive and again the whites were thundering across the mountain when the count caught up with him again the prince was kneeling over the still body of a hunchback the count dismounted smell this the prince said and he handed up a goblet nothing the count said no odor at all i a cane the prince replied i would bet my life on it i know of nothing else that kills so silently he stood up then the princess was still alive her footprints follow the path he shouted at the hundred mountain men there will be great suffering in gilder if she dies on foot now he ran along the mountain path following the footsteps he alone could see and when those footsteps left the path for wilder terrain he followed still strung up behind him the count and all the soldiers did their best to keep up men stumbled horses fell even the count tripped from time to time prince humperdinck never even broke stride he ran steadily mechanically his barrel legs pumping like a metronome it was two hours after dawn when he reached the steep ravine odd he said to the count who was tiring badly the count continued to only breathe deeply two bodies fell to the bottom and they did not come back up that is odd the count managed no that isn't what's odd the prince corrected clearly the kidnapper did not come back up because the climb was too steep and our cannons must have let him know that they were closely pursued his decision which i applaud was to make better time running along the ravine floor the count waited for the prince to continue it's just odd the man who is a master fencer a defeater of giants an expert in the use of iocane powder would not know what this ravine opens into and what is that asked the count the fire swamp said prince humperdinck then we have him said the count precisely so it was a well-documented trait trait of his to smile only just before the kill his smile was very much in evidence now wesley indeed had not the least idea that he was racing dead into the fire swamp he knew only once buttercup was down at the ravine bottom beside him that to climb out would take as prince humperdinck had assumed too much time wesley noted only that the ravine bottom was flat rock and heading in the general direction he wanted to follow so he and buttercup fled along both of them very much aware that gigantic forces were following them and undoubtedly cutting into their lead the ravine grew increasingly sheer as they went along and wesley soon realized there were that whereas once he probably could have helped her through the climb, now there was simply no way of doing so. He made his choice, and there was no changing possible. Whatever the ravine led, wherever, wherever the ravine led was their destination, and that, quite simply, was that. 
At this point in the story, my wife wants it known that she feels violently cheated not being allowed the scene of reconciliation on the ravine floor between the lovers. My reply to her. This is me, and I'm not trying to be confusing, but the above paragraph that I'm cutting into now is verbatim Morgenstern. He was continually referring to his wife in the unabridged book, saying that she loved the next section, or she thought that, all in all, the book was extraordinarily brilliant. Mrs. Morgenstern was rarely anything but supportive to her husband, unlike some wives I could mention. Sorry about that, Helen. But here's the thing. I got rid of almost all the intrusions when he told us what she thought. I didn't think the de device added a whole lot, and besides, he was always complimenting himself through her, and today we know that hyping something too much does more harm than good, as any debated politician candidate will tell you when he says, when he pays... as any defeated politician candidate will tell you when he pays his television bills. The thing is, I left this particular reference in because, for once, I totally happened to agree with Mrs. Morgenstern. I think it was unfair not to show the reunion, so I wrote one of my own. What I felt Buttercup and Wesley might have said, but Hiram, my editor, felt that made me just as unfair as Morgenstern here. If you're going to abridge a book in the author's own words, you can't go around sticking your own in. That was Hiram's point, and we really went round and round arguing over, I guess, a period of a month in person, through letters, on the phone. Finally, we compromised to this extent. This, what you're reading in the regular type, is strict Morgenstern verbatim. Cut? Yes. Changed? No. But I got Hiram to agree that Harcourt would at least print up my scene. Valentine has agreed to do the same. It's all of three pages, big deal. And if any of you want to see what it came out like, drop a note or a postcard to Urban Del Rey at Valentine Books. 201 East 50th Street, New York City, and just mention you'd like the reunion scene. Don't forget to include your return address. You'd be stunned at how many people send in for things and don't put their return address down. I interrupt this interruption about an interruption. <laughs> Which feels very much like if I place the cup in front of you, but I know that, and you know that I know that you know that we know that I... Yeah, return addresses, absolutely, to this day. Well, why does it need a return address? Oh, I forgot to put a return address. Oh, I forgot to put the address, the house number, the apartment number, the zip code. Don't you know the address? If I just tell you my friend's name, you can look up the address in your computer, right? that's how it works yeah I, I personally working for the United States Postal Service am not surprised that people send away for things and then don't put a return address down not surprised in the least 
two years into the Postal Service, and I'm like, yeah, no, not, not in the least surprised to learn that. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> okay. The publishers agreed to spring for the postage costs, so your total expense is the note or card or whatever. It would really upset me if I turned out to be the only modern American writer who gave the impression that he was with a generous publishing house. They all stink. Sorry about that, Mr. Yanovic. Yanovich? J-O-V-A-N-O-V-I-C-H. So let me just add here that the reason they are so generous in paying this giant postage bill is because they fully expect nobody to write in. So please, if you have the least interest at all, or even if you don't, write in for my reunion scene. You don't have to read it, I'm not asking that, but I would love to cost those publishing geniuses a few dollars because, let's face it, they're not spending much on advertising my books. Let me just repeat the address for you, zip code and all. Urban Delray, Bellatane Books, 201 East 50th Street, New York, New York, 10022. And just ask for your copy of the reunion scene. This has gone on longer than I planned, so I'm going to repeat the Morgan Stern paragraph I interrupted. It'll read better. Over and out! At this point in the story, my wife wants it known that she feels violently cheated not being allowed the scene of reconciliation on the ravine floor between the lovers. My reply to her is simply this. A. Each of God's beings, from the lowliest on up, is entitled to at least a few moments of genuine privacy. B. What actually was spoken, while moving enough to those involved at the actual time, flattens like toothpaste when transferred to paper for later reading. My dove, my only, bliss, bliss, etc. C. Nothing of importance in an expository way was related, because every time Buttercup began, tell me about yourself, Wesley quickly cut her off with, later, beloved, now is not the time. However, it should be noted, in fairness to all, that one, he did weep. Two, her eyes did not remain precisely dry. Three, there was more than one embrace. And four, both parties admitted that, without any qualifications whatsoever, they were more than a little glad to see each other. Besides, five, within a quarter of an hour, they were arguing. It began quite innocently, the two of them kneeling, facing each other, Wesley holding her perfect face in his quick hands. When I left you, he whispered, you were already more beautiful than anything I dared to dream. In our years apart, my imaginings did their best to improve upon your perfection. At night, your face was forever behind my eyes. Now I see that that vision who kept me company in my loneliness was a hag compared to the beauty before me. Enough about my beauty, Buttercup said. Everybody always talks about how beautiful I am. I've got a mind, Wesley. Talk about that. 
She named her horse, Horse. I would just like to remind you. Given this is years later and she has now had princess training. But still. Just, just want to remind you this is the woman that named her horse, Horse. I've got a mind, Wesley. Talk about that. Throughout eternity, I shall do that very thing, he told her. But now we haven't time. He made it to his feet. The ravine fall had shaken and battered him, but all his bones had survived the trip uncracked. He helped her to her feet. Wesley, Buttercup said then, just before I started down after you, while I was still up there, I could hear you saying something, but the words were indistinct. I've forgotten whatever it was. Terrible liar. He smiled at her and kissed her cheek. It's not important, believe me. The past has a way of being past. We must not begin with secrets from each other. She meant it. He could tell that. Trust me, he tried. I do. So tell me your words, or I shall be given reason not to. Wesley sighed. What I was trying to get through to you, beloved sweet. What I was, as a matter of accurate fact, shouting with everything I had left was, Whatever you do, stay up there. Don't come down here. Please. You didn't want to see me. I just need to point out, if my inflection sounded odd there, that is not a question from Buttercup. That is a statement. You didn't want to see me. Period. <laughs> of course I wanted to see you. I just didn't want to see you down here. Why ever not? Because now, my precious, we're more or less kind of trapped. I can't climb out of here and bring you with me without it taking all day. I can get out myself, most likely, without it taking all day, but with the addition of your lovely bulk... <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not... Not the compliment! It, uh, nope! <laughs> it's not something I ever want anyone to say to me. Well, the, oh, I could get out of this couple hundred of foot ravine. I'd, I'd be fine. I, I could totally do it on my own. You, you can't. And with you, now I can't. Because your lovely bulk. <laughs> just... <laughs> just... I would be so offended. <laughs> get out myself most likely without it taking all day but with the addition of your lovely bulk it's not about to happen nonsense you climbed the cliffs of insanity and this isn't nearly that steep and it took a little out of me too let me tell you and after that little effort i tangled with a fellow who knew a little something about fencing and after that i spent i spent a few happy moments grappling with a giant and after that I had to outfake a Sicilian to death when 
Any mistake meant it was a knife in the throat for you. And after that, I run my lungs out a couple of hours. And after that, I was pushed 200 feet down a rock ravine. I'm tired, Buttercup. Do you understand? Tired? I've put in a night, is what I'm trying to get you through. Is what I'm trying to get through to you. I'm not stupid, you know. Quit bragging. Stop being rude. When was the last time you read a book? The truth now. And picture books don't count. I mean something with print in it. Buttercup walked away from him. There's other things to read than print, she said. And the Princess of Hammersmith is displeased with you and is thinking seriously of going home. With no more words, she whirled into his arms then, saying, Oh, Wesley, I didn't mean that. I didn't. I didn't. Not a single syllable of it. Now, Wesley knew that she meant to say not a single syllable of it, because syllabulb, S-Y-L-L-A-B-U-B, was something you ate with cream and wine mixed in together to form the base. But he also knew an apology when he heard one. So he held her very close and shut his loving eyes and only whispered, I knew it was false, believe me, every single syllable. And that out of the way, they started running as fast as they could along the flat rock floor of the ravine. Okay, before we go on to the next part. I can't tell if it's sweet or more mocking when he also uses the word syllabub that he knows is the incorrect word. I, I think it depends on his intent. And after that whole, when's the last time you read a real book? It comes off as being more sarcasm from Wesley. Every single syllabub. Okie dokes, so just for funsies. I have gone to the Wikipedia page for syllabub. Syllabub is a sweet dish made by curdling sweet cream or milk with an acid such as wine or cider. It was a popular British confection from the 16th to the 19th centuries. It's a really pretty glass in this picture, but it looks, I don't know, slightly gross. Um... Maybe it's just the color of the wine mixed with, cause like it, it's kind of curdling. It looks, it's kind of like red jello whipped cream topped, like color wise. Okie dokes. Um, in like, not quite a shot glass. Early recipes for syllabub are for a drink of cider with milk. By the 17th century, it had evolved into a type of dessert made with sweet white wine. 
More wine could be added to make a punch, but it could also be made to have a thicker consistency that could be eaten with a spoon, used as a topping for trifle or to dip fingers of sponge cake into. The holiday punch, sweet and frothy, was often considered a lady's drink. The milk and cream used in those days would have been thicker, and modern recipes may need to make some adjustments to achieve the same effect. Do, 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 do. History. It is spelled so many ways. Syllabub. Uh, here, just, you know, for funsies, we'll spell all the ways. S-O-L-Y-B-U-B-B-E. S-U-L-L-A-B-U-B. S-U-L-L-I-B-I. Sorry. I forgot, I forgot where I was in the middle of spelling that word. S-U-L-L-I-B-I-B. S-U-L-L-Y-B-U-B. S-U-L-L-I-B-U-B. S-Y-L-L-A-B-U-B. There is no certain etymology and considerable variation in spelling. Um, it has been known in England at least since John Haywood's th thirsts, T-H-E-R-S-Y-T-E-S, -E of about 1537. Um, then we quote, you and I must walk to him and eat a syllabub. Is that one of the other spellings? Oh, it's, it's that S-O-L-Y-B-U-B-B-E. The word occurs repeatedly, including in... I, am I supposed... Uh, Samuel Pepe's diary? For the 12th of July, 1663. Then to Commissioner Pets and had a good syllabub. And in Thomas Hughes, Tom Brown at Oxford of 1861. We retire to tea or syllabub beneath the shade of some great oak. Hannah Glass, in the 18th century, published the recipe for whipped syllabubs in The Art of Cookery Made Plain and Easy. The recipe included a quart of thick cream and half a pint of sack. I will, we'll get to sack in a second because I don't know what that is. The juice of two se Seville oranges. It looks like Neville, but with an S. S-E-V-I-L-L-E. Oranges or lemons, grate in the peel of two lemons, half a pound of double refined sugar. The ingredients were whipped together and then poured into glasses. The curdled cream separated and floated to the top of the glass. Okay, so now we're going backwards through words I didn't understand to several oranges. There's a bitter sour orange or a marmalade orange. Native to South Asia. Okay, that's all of interest of the oranges, to me at least. Now to what half a pint of sack is. Sack is an antiquated wine term referring to white fortified wine imported from mainland Spain or the Canary Islands. There was a sack of different origin... 
There was sack of different origins, such as canary sack from the Canary Islands. Da 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 da. The term sherry sack later gave way to sherry as the English term for fortified wine. Since sherry is particularly the only one of these wines still widely exported and consumed, sack, by itself, without qualifier, is commonly but not quite correctly quoted as an old synonym for sherry. Most sack was probably sweet and matured in wooden barrels for a limited time. In modern terms, typical sack may have resembled cheaper versions of medium Oloroso sherry? Today, sack is sometimes seen in the name of some sherries, such as William and Humbert brand dry sack. Okay. So. Every single syllabub. So we've basically kind of got whipped cream and sherry. Yeah, I would just like to go back to when Buttercup was like, I'm not stupid. Yeah. Every single syllable. <laughs> Wesley, naturally enough was considerably ahead of Buttercup with the realization that they were heading into the fire swamp. Whether it was a touch of sulfur riding a breeze or a flick of yellow flame far ahead in the daylight, he could not say for sure. But once he realized what was about to happen, he began as casually as possible to find a way to avoid it. A quick glance up at the sheer ravine sides ruled out any possibility of his getting Buttercup past the climb. He dropped to the ground, as he had been doing every few minutes, to test the speed of their trackers. Now, he guessed them to be less than half an hour behind and gaining. He rose and ran with her faster, neither of them spending breath in conversation. It was only a matter of time before she understood what they were about to be into, so he decided to beat her Sorry, he decided to beat back her panic. My brain was just like, yeah, he slapped her earlier. Good lord, okay. It was only a matter of time before she understood what they were about to be into, so he decided to beat back her panic in any way possible. I think we can slow down a bit now, he told her, slowing down a bit. They're still well behind. Buttercup? Buttercup took a deep breath of relief. Wesley made a show of checking their surroundings. Then he gave her his best smile. With any luck at all, he said, we should soon be safely in the fire swamp. Buttercup heard his speech, of course. But she did not. She did not take it well. A few words now on two related subjects. One, fire swamps in general, and two, the Florin Gilder fire swamp in particular. One, fire swamps are, of course, entirely misnamed. 
As to why this has happened, no one knows, though probably the colorful quality of the two words together is enough. Simply, there are swamps which contain a larger percentage of sulfur and other gas bubbles that burst continually into flame. They are covered with lush, giant trees that shadow the ground, making the flame burst seem particularly dramatic. Because they are dark, they are almost always quite moist, thereby attracting the standard insect and alligator community that prefers a moist climate. In other words, a fire swamp is just a swamp, period. The rest is embroidery. Two. The Florin Gilder Fire Swamp did and does have some particularly odd characteristics. A. The existence of snow sand, and B. The presence of R-O-U-S, about which a bit more later. Snow sand is usually, again, incorrectly identified with lightning sand. Nothing could be less accurate. Lightning sand is moist and basically destroys by drowning. Snow sand is as powdery as anything short of talcum and destroys by suffocation. Most particularly though, the Florin Gilder fire swamp was used to frighten children. There was not a child in either country that at one time or another was not, when misbehaving very badly, threatened with abandonment in the fire swamp. That is the most terrifying threat. <laughs> just, just the abandonment in the fire swamp. Damn. Okay. Um. There was not a child in either country that, at one time or another, was not, when misbehaving very badly, threatened with abandonment in the fire swamp. Do that one more time, and you're going to the fire swamp. Is as common as. Clean your plate, people are starving in China. And so, as children grew, so did the danger of the fire swamp in their, enlarge, in their enlarging imaginations. No one, of course, ever actually went into the fire swamp, although every year or so, a deceased, a diseased, sorry, a diseased R-O-U-S might wander out to die and its discovery would only add to the myth and the horror. The largest known fire swamp is, of course, within a day's drive of Perth. It is impenetrable and over 25 miles square. The one between Florin and Gilder was barely a third that size. No one has been able to figure out if it was impenetrable or not. Buttercup stared at the fire swamp. As a child, she had once spent an entire nightmare year convinced that she was going to die there. Now, she could not move another step. The giant trees blackened the ground ahead of her. From every part came the sudden flames. You cannot ask it of me, she said. I must. I once dreamed I would die here. So did I. So did we all. Were you eight that year? I was. Eight? Six? I can't remember. Wesley took her hand. She could not move. Must we? Wesley nodded. Why? Now was not the time. He pulled her gently. 
She still could not move. Wesley took her in his arms. Child, sweet child, I have a knife. I have my sword. I did not come across the world to lose you now. Buttercup was searching somewhere for a sufficiency of courage. Evidently, she found it in his eyes. At any rate, hand in hand, they moved into the shadows of the fire swamp. <laughs>